This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom for an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offer of sale on investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Church affiliates. It's going to be an interesting discussion. If we can get our, our guests on the line, we're having a little bit of audio difficulty trying to find our, our two, uh, Professor Siegel, for some market commentary. Uh, and then we have our, our first guest is a portfolio manager, a macro strategist at Voya Investment Management. Um, so I, I work closely with Voya on sub-advising some of our fixed income funds. Guy Petro works in their macro team. As we talked to us a little bit about Voya's views across asset classes, stocks, bonds, all the, the scenarios in, in the market today, which is really you know, the, a, a very interesting market dynamic. Uh, the second half of the program, we'll be talking with Greg Valliere, who's one of the really political commentaries we, we've had on the show. It's been since uh, the election back, I, I want to say in 2016, since we've talked with Greg, and he really has a lot going on for the second half of the year that's dominated by talks of trade, by politics, about the midterm elections. Uh, it's really interesting to get Greg's take on what's going on. Guy, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. We were sort of just setting. I was setting up the macro discussion. When you, when you think about what's you know what's going on, the U.S. markets are hanging in there, but where you're getting a lot of volatility, you're getting it in the international emerging markets. Before I before we get to all that, maybe just tell our listeners. Um, you, know, you work at Voya in the macro team. Talk about how that macro work feeds into all the different things. Voya, sort of the specialties of Voya, and, and how your work feeds in there. Sure. So um, we are indeed an investment management firm. Um, the macro perspective is a framework which um, operates um, on the basis of uh, a, a, a process that is analytical, um, that is transparent, and that effectively um, com- combines m- multiple disciplines. So we, we begin with the fundamental, then we um, integrate the policy then the demand supply considerations of the market. So we look very carefully at capital flows, and then we look at empirical valuations. And we consider that that informs both the asset allocation process as well as the alpha generation in terms of rates and foreign exchange. And and so now there's a lot of different funds that Voya runs, and you work with us on our fixed income strategies. I mean, how does that macro team feed that into across the different the different groups there? So the way that it works is that we have an entire asset allocation process, and then we have uh, devoted um, macro portfolio managers, myself being one of just a handful. And uh, we basically have rates rates expressions and FX expressions in the corresponding um, appropriate strategies, such as strategic income, or global or core plus, um, and then you just have a very important aspect, which is that the macro role itself is a key input into making decisions about how risk is going to be allocated. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, this emerging market um, experience that, that is unfolding today. I mean, we can recall maybe two or three months ago that all EM was under was um, underperforming, and you would see very consistently on Bloomberg News and CNBC um, portfolio managers talking about how emerging markets was looking good, fundamentals were very strong. So we had a different perspective, but the point is the macro drives 
key decision making around how we're positioned around these uh, yeah. these risk assets. So, so two weeks, two months ago, you were a little bit more pessimistic. Where, what's? I mean, a lot of that's now reflecting. The currencies have been. I mean, a lot of it's been a currency story. Turkey's been the, the main headline recently, but it's definitely spreading out across. What's? How would you read? What's your read of the current situation? What's driving the slowdown and and for the currency weakness? It's a great question. So. Um, I would begin by sort of taking a step back. I mean, we can sort of delve into Turkey, um, but it might be, and we can get to that level because sure. that's, I think, fascinating. But it might be interesting just to note that the seeds were already sowed for um, for the emerging markets crisis going into this year, and then whether it would have, would have been Turkey or some other economy, um, okay, you know. Uh, we always have in the course of a year one particular EM economy that severely underperforms versus others where uh, whether we have uh, an economic uh, climate that is positive or negative, like last year it happened to be Brazil, for one. Um, but in general, you had EM economies that were already experiencing from about, call it February, the uh, effects from the China slowdown. And China began to slow not, let's say, three months ago, but really at the end of last year after President Xi selected his seven-member standing committee and then put the brakes on credit creation. And at that point, you had credit, credit growth really slowing at the same pace as in 2013-14, which was the precedent for the 2015 and 16 slowdown globally. So as a result of China slowing, we have seen industrial commodities plunge. And really that was the first effect, which was the terms of trade for all these emerging market economies that were commodity driven were falling. The second was that these EM economies had all experienced their peak economic um, peak economic growth internally. So we already had these economies leaning down in terms of growth. And the third, and I would say probably the most important variable, was that this, this, this street and, and I believe in general, people were talking about how capital flows into emerging markets were going to be good, but not as strong as 2017. The issue, though, is that you need capital flows to be not just as good as 2017, but as good as the change from 2016 to 17. So in other words, there was a deceleration of capital flows that was already going to happen in the base case. So anything that would underperform in terms of the other components, and you were basically going to see um, investors just naturally pick up the, or basically slow down from there, and then you were basically going to get a feedback effect because you already had already had the, the fact that commodity prices were going down, so terms of trade, which is very important for exporting economies like Brazil, South Africa, Russia, also hitting their export sector, and then you had their domestic economies weakening, and then ultimately you just had investors that really couldn't support these economies in terms of flows like you did the prior years, especially since interest rates in the U.S. were going higher. And so it was no longer as attractive to, of course, hold EM debt. And the last piece of the puzzle, and I think this is really very, very important, is that you had in these economies falling inflation, which meant the central banks could cut interest rates. And the view from investors was, well, if you're cutting interest rates, then the local debt Debt, like the local yields of these economies are going down. So we'll just buy more of your debt paper. And that supports everything, equities and debt and the whole shebang. And the problem is then that wasn't the case any, anymore in 2018. You know, inflation in the EM economies has been rising uh, or they have weaker growth, which, prevent, which basically depreciates the currency and prevents uh, central banks from deploying what is considered to be counter-cyclical policy, i.e. cutting rates, because if you cut rates when your currency is depreciating in EM, in EM economies, then your, your currency is going to depreciate more. So in fact, someone like Turkey has to actually raise rates very quickly 
to stabilize the currency, to basically kill inflation, and also in the process, kill the economy, which really hurts capital flows. Until ultimately, you do kill the economy so there's no longer the current account imbalance, and then the whole story ends. And that's really, that's really the, the perspective on, on EM. And so, you know, I think the the focal point is uh, partly what you're saying. China is the centerpiece of all these discussions in some ways that you have China slowing down. That feeds into commodities. That feeds into some of these other EMs. And so the general capital flow scenario partly gets gets impacted by what is sentiment around China. So do you do you guys have a view on just I mean, the, the big discussion now is the trade discussion with China and what, what are they doing to their currency as a result of that? But any view of, of are we going to get closer to to the maximum pessimism or is it still more to go until we get a trade deal? So good, good, great question. Well, first, China from here will continue to, I just want to mention this, because China from here will continue to deteriorate. And this also was in the cards prior to the tax, the tariff, excuse me, frictions. So its exports will continue to slow severely from here. In fact, exports, uh, China exports are probably going to go to 0% year over year. You know, global trade growth right now, it, like global volumes, global trade volumes are now actually uh, the weakest in two and a half years. And that's going to continue to be the trend. So this is a problem that has to be confronted and either China reverses its policy on credit growth um, and, and or does everything else that it's done. So it's basically thrown everything at the problem except for the credit growth aspect. And the problem is that it really needs to address credit growth if, if it actually wants to generate the traditional industrial growth that has sustained the China economy. If not, then we're just going to have a deterioration of China growth that we saw in the pri in prior years. Um, that means that China has really no choice but to continue to depreciate its currency. Uh, whether it has a – whether tariffs remain at the forefront or not. So that is – that is going to happen regardless. And that means that we should understand that we're going to have a depreciating Asia currency that's going to hit the EM economies, currencies in general. EM economies, by the way, like EM Asia has been particularly weak, and that will continue to, continue to weaken. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the um, – the administration be more and more vocal about China's efforts to support its export uh, its export uh, sector because its exports are deteriorating so quickly. So that's going to create more friction, um, and as a result, it's going to escalate from here until we finally have some moderation of economic growth from the U.S. side. And I anticipate that happening somewhat, and probably it'll be a surprise, but I'm not sure if it'll be sufficient to really change the tone, because U.S. growth going to 2%, let's say, you know, you still have China on its back foot. Let's talk about a little bit what when we talk about the uh, the currency depreciation. Let's give people some context for for how it's moved over the last sort of fifteen fifteen twenty years. So you had this pegged rate of the yuan back in the early two thousands. It was like in the range of eight point three yuan to the dollar. Then they started letting it appreciate, and it started going you know basically from oh five. I'm looking at a chart through two thousand eight. It got towards sort of from that eight level down to. You know, at, at sort of less um, less you want to the dollar starts getting appreciating. You get, you're down at six point eight six, and then at the bottom, at sort of peak uh, peak strength for the yuan, you got 2013 down to six yuan to the dollar. Then it started depreciating again, got down to seven yuan in 2016. Then they got down to six and a half. Now it's around six point eight, and so a lot of people are talking about the seven handle. Like, will it get back to the seven handle? And then, you know, if you go back to that 15 years, will ever will do you think it? When you talk about big depreciation, do you think it goes back to eight? Like will, the seven is a big number for people now, but where, where do you think it actually goes over the coming uh, coming few years? So it'll definitely break, break seven. 
uh, in my uh, calculation. There's, there's no doubt. Um, I, based on uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't believe. Um, quite frankly, I mean, people like on the street to think about the absolute number, but um, I don't believe that the actual levels of the currency are important for policymakers other than as a psychological gauge, granted. And so I think from there, you know, if we break, let's say, eight, then people would be shocked. But it has to be a the reason why I hesitate to directly answer the question is because it becomes then a, a psychological process of accepting an eight handle as we move toward eight from yeah. seven. No, and forecasts are notoriously reliable. Nobody really knows the future. So I, it's always just here, interesting to hear directionally. I mean, it is directionally interesting to hear you think uh, sort of exports are, are going to slow down to zero. Is that from is there the, the big driver of slowdown in global growth? Where, where would you say that's, that's largely coming from? So if we like, so the it's 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 a good question because I, I sound so confident about it. But in fact, the 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 industrial the industrial price complex gives us an an excellent view into this. The way to pro, to answer the question about the renminbi, uh, the China's currency, by the way, is to look at, at it more closely versus uh, exports and to see, for instance, how much it depreciated during the last cycle and to think therefore that it's going to be somewhat similar this time. You can just run some regressions and that'll actually give us get us very close to a concrete or at least a value judgment on where, where we should go on the currency. But to your question, um, for exports, the industrial, industrial prices give us a great deal of insight and that's because China is the world's greatest consumer of basic industrial prices. And what happens is that Industrial prices are the first movers in the global industrial chain. Um, and that is because they are at the top of the, of the stream, of the value stream. So what typically happens is that it, the first thing that – is that China first accumulates – first purchases industrials. It then takes time to process them into goods and services – to then receive other imported components that go in, and finally, to then put them into inventories and ultimately export them. So that this, this basically duration of time is what is very helpful in looking at industrial prices to gauge what will happen in exports. So what I have found is that looking at basic metals prices that are inputs prices, into this process actually lead exports by approximately nine months. Hmm. And based on the fact that industrial prices have fallen so significantly, we should see China exports go to, to zero. Got it. So I'm quite confident on that. Uh, on that Robust case. model of the input forces to the to the exports and it's probably leading by nine months. Very very interesting. So that, so the commodity prices and interest rates are are, are part of your. So I assume this uh, global macro work. We're talking again with Guy Petro, global portfolio manager at Voy Investment Management, who focuses on rates and exchange rates, uh, interest rates and exchange rates. When you think about, we talked a little bit a lot about China and the EM because that's so much of what's going on on a day to day basis. But part of that you said also was the Fed hiking rates and uh, that that putting some pressure that there's more competition for just the carry that you could earn in EM. How do you think the Fed? What's your outlook for the Fed this year? And you know, you think they're going to still do two hikes for the rest of the year? Do you, would you have uh, any any view on? Are they going to start reacting to the volatility they're seeing from from some of their interest rate pressures that they're putting on? So, uh, good question. The the answer is that. Unfortunately, they probably will stick to two because they are so committed to it, um, and they're a super tanker, and they have to recommunicate uh, at this point, and they don't see necessary. And, and frankly, U.S. GDP growth—if it's—if it even slows down to two percent, okay, they'll—they'll will then simply adjust their 2019 trajectory and 2020 trajectory. Um, and inflation should stay right about here. It's probably 
going to peak somewhere around around this level on the core, uh, maybe a little higher. Um, so the Fed should probably will not respond to what's happening. It has not done so thus far, and that that of course is notwithstanding notwithstanding a systemic event from Turkey, um, which is not my my baseline. I mean Turkey will. Turkey still needs to suffer a reckoning because its credit growth is very positive. It needs to experience uh, sharp, uh, sharp uh, negative growth, um, but um, and then that'll hit obviously what we are familiar with, which is the Spanish banks that have exposure to Turkey. But overall, you have one percent of profits. Uh, sorry, uh, Turkish business line uh, profits to European banks only represent 1%. Um, they represent a lot more to, let's say, BBVA, which is 24% last year. So that's pro- that's going to go down to cl- close to zero, like it'll be zero to 5% probably. But um, the Fed is likely to stay on, to stay the course, which will, however, in this context, flatten the curve significantly. And we have to remember something that is, at this point, very, very important, and it goes directly to your question, which is uh, the U.S. is not an island. There's really no such thing as decoupling based on my work. In the, I mean, in, in the short term, sure, there's decoupling. I mean, you can have decoupling temporarily, but not over a, a – not over normal um, – growth rate cycles uh, that equal business cycles. So we are going to be impacted by the slowdown in global growth and, uh, and, and by the slowdown in global trade. And uh, we can't really avoid that. And we're coming off such high levels that um, it's inevitable. One particular channel that shows huge, huge deviation in terms of the U.S. versus the world is, like I said, trade. So U.S. trade has been excellent, and part of that has been the tariff effect, whereas world trade has really suffered. So there should be an adjustment that the Fed really isn't accounting for in terms of U.S. growth. Just not clear if that's enough in my mind to stop the Fed, but it will since we're since the Fed, and this is the key, the Fed's going to focus in the next six months on what you know where it should stop hiking what should be the neutral the true neutral rate is it really three percent at three percent in my mind we're going to have a curve that is almost zero so you don't think the the, the long rate's going to rise so right, right now we're 285 in the 10 year the fed gets to three and maybe you pressure it up a little bit but you're gonna you're not gonna see real three or three and a half to four on the 10 year no, no, no. I, I really don't believe that to be the case because <clears throat> European rates are so low, Japan rates are at zero, and that's global global bond market. It, well, yeah. I mean, certainly. I mean, they're, they're definitely coupled. If we were getting strong growth in um, across those economies, and we had central banks that were moving forward on on tightening um, rather than not, then that would definitely be a key a key pressure point. Um, and additionally, when we look historically, when the Fed hikes to this point relative to nominal GDP, it has always caused the curve to either almost approach zero or cross zero entirely. So the the last scenario that is similar to this one is 94.95, where it didn't look like it was really trying to... To, to tighten in an overheating economy. And in that case, the curve two stands went to seven basis points. And um, I'm not sure what it is now, 25 basis points just to round. But basically, the Treasury curve is going to find, and that'll offset the the tightening that we're going to see in the front end. Hmm. So, you know, the, everybody looks at that inverted curve as like the primary recession indicator. Is that, is that an input you guys use in, the, in your macro strategy team? Or do you, is, is there, you know, the, the, those dangerous words, this time is different. Is that, uh, is that a possibility? It's a, it's a good question because it's, you know, it just rolls off everyone's lips, right? But uh, the, um, 
It is, but it's typically very, very much leading. So it's it's one of those things where it it, it leads by I, I I can't recall, but it's at least a year um, and probably more. So I'm not um, I'm not I wouldn't say that if the curve really is inverting. That I mean, in the case where the curve is quickly inverting. Then it's it's we all we will all know that it's because just inflate economic prospects are are collapsing right and and everyone will know it and then and the Fed's not doing anything and that's just a policy error. In this case, it's it it, it will you know as the curve is flattening, it will reflect certainly um, stagnant economic a stagnant economic view from the market or a deteriorating economic view. So. It just—it's hard to go from there to an inf- to a recession in my mind, and that's why it typically there's this very lo- long lag historically. It's just not well connected, so we we can't really use it as a, as a recession indicator as more as much as we know that the as much as hey this tells us that the market is also perceiving long-term rates, which are an indication of. Of the of the nominal GDP outlook and of Fed fund expectations as going lower, and that makes sense to us. So, so if you try to take all, we've sort of had a, a big, very big picture macro discussion on rates, on currencies, on, on on trade and GDP. When you think about sort of translating all of this, you know, if we try to take some bottom line views for our listeners and and even the portfolio managers at Voya and how they implement all of these views that you're talking about. Do you do you have you know some bottom line asset class views whether it's equities bonds um, U.S. versus foreign anything that you would say to try to summarize how you boil down these different views into a an expression in, in a portfolio? Um, yeah, well, right now we we continue to see the emerging markets sector as uh, very unfavorable. So I mentioned Turkey. But beyond that, we'll see a continued pattern of um, of deterioration economically, with central banks really hamstrung there. The only thing they'll be able to do is raise rates to stabilize their currencies. So EM is not a preferred sector. Um, in turn, we are looking at credit spreads, but IG, for instance, is quite tight. So we're not very excited about the opportunity to invest in investment grade. So instead, we're pursuing opportunities to capture yield in securitized. So we're looking at uh, CMBS, for instance, and that's where we have um, we have been focusing our our attention. Interesting. And we, have, yeah. we haven't quite had a, a big credit cycle, credit event type thing. And sort of investment grade spreads aren't uh, that exciting. But you like CMBS, anything, any thoughts on just the general high yield market? So high yield, good question. I mean, high yield at this point is very similar to EM. When you look at, by similar to EM, I, I apologize. I don't mean to say that, but in, in, the, in, the, in our final call on it, and that's because high yield is held in quite well with emerging markets deteriorating and at it, at some point these either EM has to rally or high yield has to experience the a a a a, a widening to reflect the emerging markets um, the emerging markets uh, repricing and we are leaning in that direction um, so we're not really that compelled about high yield valuations. The other thing is we also like the dollar here. So we're looking at ways to to express dollar longs, and and there are many ways to do it. Um, you know, versus EM, and also versus um, Canada versus Euro. Um, so that's those are the the core views that we have. Very interesting. Um, so we've been talking with Guy Petro, a global macro uh, strategist at Voy Investment Management. Guy, thank you so much for sharing your views with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, the second half of the program, we're talking with Greg Valier. He is a strategist at uh, Horizon Investments, writes a great piece, Capital Notes. He's a sort of expert on the political situation, a deep Washington insider. Uh, it'll be an interesting discussion with Greg. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. We'll be back after a short break. 
Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and now I'm going to be welcoming Greg Vellier back to the show. Greg is the Chief Global Strategist, Horizon Investments, and he talks to clients about how events in Washington might affect their investments. Uh, Greg, I think the last time you were on the show, Donald Trump had just been sworn in as president. I think so, and, and Jeremy, from then until now, he's been very good for me. <laughs> you're, you're a lot more commenting the entire time you gotta i'm sure you're on twitter a little bit more than you might have been yep. before the uh the inauguration yeah absolutely i mean the list of things that you know my clients are big investors i mean the list of things that they're concerned about my gosh i'm sure we'll talk about them in the next few minutes whether it's trade or him going after the federal reserve or deficits taxes i mean it's been uh, quite a ride I mean, one of the, how do you th- think big picture? I mean, when a lot of there's a there, very heated emotions on both sides, right? On sort of the pro-Trump, the 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 anti-Trump. H- how do you think people really? I mean, when you talk to clients and investors, how are you suggesting a they should filter all this political noise in terms of actually thinking about what to do with their portfolios? Well, it's a great question, and I'd say that what I say to clients, and most all of them agree, is filter this out. Don't pay attention to the tweets to all the crazy stuff that goes on every day, and look at the fundamentals. And the economic fundamentals, I think, are still very good. Contained inflation, decent GDP, wonderful labor market, solid corporate earnings, on and on and on. So I think that you have to divorce all the nonsense coming out of Washington with the fundamentals, which are still really good. Yeah, there is a lot of a lot of noise, a lot of tweets. Um, what as you think through? I mean, I, certainly when we've talked about big picture outlook, we we've thought you know you had this view of the Fed hiking rates as one thing, creating a little bit of a headwind, and then you also have the midterm elections coming yep. up, and that is the other sort of uncertainty period where you know the the Republicans have control of the House, the Senate, the presidency. What's your sense on, do you think there's going to be more volatility with the midterms? Do you have a view on, I think the, if you look at the odds makers, the odds makers are like two to one that the Democrats take the, take control back of the, of the House. What's your, your general sense? But well, let me take the two issues you mentioned very quickly first. Uh, we all know the Fed is going to raise rates in September, and it's virtually certain, and they probably will raise rates in December. That's not the issue. The issue is that Trump has indicated that he might make uh, the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, a target. If we get two more rate hikes, I could see in, uh, you know, in late December Trump tweeting about the Fed overdoing it, and I think that would be an irritant for the markets. The second issue, of course, the election, uh, it's, it's an unusual split based on who's up in the Senate, but I think the odds do favor the House flipping back to the Democrats. But I just can't make the numbers work for the Democrats in the Senate. I think the Republicans might actually gain a seat or two based on who's up. There's an unusual split of who's up, and the Democrats just happen to have a lot of really vulnerable seats. Do you have a do you want to you know I don't I'm not as race by race and have no real background on 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 doing that any commentary on what what are the most interesting races to be watching? Well, I, I'd say that the Democrats have to pick up th- at least two of the three shaky Republican seats. That would be in Tennessee, uh, it would be uh, in Arizona, and it would also boy I can't remember the other one. Uh, but I, I don't see right now the Democrats being able to pick up uh, two or three. Maybe they can pick up one. That might be it. Hmm. And then, and then the narrative is that you think the uh, that the Republicans will the odds makers are still saying two to one on on the House. So what what's is it that it's just you got Trump and people aren't as happy with what where he's going that they're going to sort of put put the. Uh, the change on or any other things on the on the races that make you think that that's sort of the right prescription? I mean, I think you have to ask the question in every election uh, about turnout. And I think the more motivated voters are um, are Democrats. I think people of color, uh, women, young people are far more uh, far more inclined to turn out this time. So I, I so I would say turnout would would definitely favor the Democrats. You know, a great unknown is, could you see a lot of Republican voters come out because the economy is so good? You know, if people do vote their pocketbooks, the Republicans have a chance. But I'd say right now, uh, the Democrats are favored uh, to take the uh, to take back the, the House. Hmm. 
Now, what, what, in terms of the uh, the trade negotiations that we're hearing, it, it, what what's your inside view? I mean, we, we've uh, I, I heard a, a, a recent view that you know we're gonna as we get to the midterms, you're gonna slowly see trickle by trickle things with Mexico, things with NAFTA, things then to Europe, and then to ultimately to China as sort of the last right before the midterms start to roll in, start to get a little bit more. Maybe not everything is signed mm-hmm. and sealed before the midterms, but they're just gonna start rolling these deals in. Uh, is that is that consistent with what you're hearing? Or yeah. And I should I just add one thing, and that is immigration is still a big deal. And I, I, the third seat that the Democrats are looking at is, you know, it's Nevada, Arizona, and Tennessee. So especially in Nevada and Arizona, immigration is an issue that uh, is going to be huge. As far as uh, trade, I, I think that this president realizes that he might have to cool it for a while. Uh, as you know, the markets rallied uh, in the last few days because the U.S.-China talks will, will resume. Uh, we're getting close to a deal with Mexico. And I think Trump realizes that if he stays strident and hardline and rigid on trade, uh, that could hurt the Republicans, especially in the farm belt where there's already a lot of anxiety over things like soybeans. Yeah, no, I mean the the, the ag prices there. It's it's an interesting where you're saying, well, hey, um, we need to fight back on China, and some of that, you know, the fighting back is 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 warranted if they have all of our IP when we go over there. Some yep. of that's it's a it's a worthwhile somebody sticking up for that, um, but you know, I, I don't think anybody really wants to see all their prices rise. No, but I, I tell people as I travel around the country, it's a bit surprising in, inside the Beltway, both parties are pretty united on the issue of. The Chinese have to be punished. I mean, they've stolen our intellectual property. They steal a lot of our new technology. I mean, you see counterfeit uh, products on, uh, on the streets of Beijing within weeks of these products being introduced in the U.S. So I do think there's a strong desire uh, to hit back on the Chinese. And I think the Chinese are starting to squirm. Uh, their markets are shaky. Uh, there's talk of layoffs. Uh, there's talk also of internal dissent in China over which way to go. Mm-hmm. So I think this is starting to have an impact on China. And anything else from the ramifications to the rest of Asia? I mean, I think the, you know, a lot of, we, we had Graham Allison on our program before talking about Thucydides' trap and how the rise of China versus the U.S. and, and it could always be a third actor, somebody like North Korea who pulls us into a, a real conflict with China. But do you, do you have a sense, I think everybody was surprised. Everybody thought you might get a, you know, there was all the, uh, the really talk that, oh, we're going to get a nuclear war with North Korea, but now we actually have them sort of signing a, a peace treaty. A, any sense on, on how that is going th- through the rest of Asia? Yeah, I, I think it's too premature to declare victory with North uh, Korea, but uh, clearly the chances of war today are a heck of a lot less than the chances of war a year ago, so you have to be encouraged by that. Uh, frankly, I worry more about Iran uh, than any other country. But no, I, I think the 800-pound the, the gorilla in the room is the Chinese. And the, the question is, do they finally get it? Do they understand they're going to have to make significant concessions or this trade war is going to persist for you know, many, many more months? Yeah, I mean, the, the Iran point is interesting. I saw some stories talking about how how Putin might be coming together with an Iran and Turkey yeah. summit, uh, and that might be by him sort of getting this trio together. Is there any, is that any, I mean, commentary on, on just that Turkey situation boiling over with, with Iran? You know, I, I don't see the end game, Jeremy. I don't see the, uh, the Turks releasing this uh, minister, and there are a couple of other U.S. prisoners as well, and I don't see the Trump administration making any concessions. So this could drag on for a while. And I do think that uh, when you drag in countries like Iran, potentially, that, uh, that that's something you've got to be concerned about. So again, I, uh, I, I worry a lot about that. I worry that uh, we could have a spark in the Persian Gulf, that a, an Iranian ship could hit a U.S. ship, and there could be several days of real tension. So that's, that's one that I think is high on my list of wild cards for the markets over the next several months. 
Yep. We're, we're, we're talking with Greg Valliere, Chief Global Strategist at Horizon Investments, uh, focuses a lot on what's going on in Washington, how that impacts portfolios, and, and really politics has become center stage for everybody on a daily basis, but also you know for the markets. And you know, we were just talking about sort of maybe Russia coming together on, on overlooking Iran and Turkey, um, but you know, you can't also escape daily conversation of, of Russia, the Mueller investigation. Do do people, do investors care about this this uh, this investigation? They've got one eye on it, but I don't think the uh, the Mueller stuff has really uh, had a huge impact on the markets. It certainly hasn't on the price of stocks, I would argue. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a realization that Mueller will come up with something. He's indicated he does not feel he has the statutory authority to indict a sitting president, but he can indict a heck of a lot of other people uh, close to the president, and I don't rule that out. So th- this story's got a ways to go. I think that Mueller will dump everything he gets onto Congress. I think if the Democrats take uh, the, the House, and I do think they will, by early next year, there'll be talk of a uh, of an impeachment or an indictment. The words are interchangeable. I think the House could impeach. The key issue, of course, is could the Senate convict? And I just don't see 67 votes in the Senate to convict. But, I mean, who wants to go through this? Who wants to have month after month of an impeachment trial? I, I don't think that's a positive story for the markets. No, that anytime you bring uncertainty, I mean, you could say one of the things that the market does not like is uncertainty, and that yep. that does sound like one of the issues that could bring you know why you might have political noise coming back after after the midterms or even around the midterms is is this potential here? And and frankly, who knows what's in all of these tapes that uh, Omarosa has that uh, uh, Michael Cohen has? I mean, there's there's probably more stuff to come. And that does raise the possibility that an impeachment trial could become um, a real concern for the markets. But again, for now, I'm sticking with my story. I do not see 67 votes in the Senate to convict. So, you know, if we get to that point where there is this extra noise and and, and potentially sell-offs as as you get that noise, that you would say, well, what what are you? What would you actually say? How would you think going into that? Do you think people should be taking some chips off the table? We've had such strong markets. Now is the time to get more defensive ahead of that, and then you come back in afterwards. Is that what? Is that uh, part of part of your prognosis? The, the markets are so immune to this stuff. Let, let, let me make this comment. I, I think that when there's great uncertainty, and we've seen it recently with Turkey and the lira, we've seen it with uh, trade in China. Investors just instinctively go to safe havens. Well, the safest haven of all is U.S. Treasuries. And what we've seen, as you well know, in the last few weeks is interest rates dropping because uh, Treasuries look more attractive during a period of uncertainty. So that, that's the silver lining in all of this that you could see, uh, ironically, even if there's a Turkey crisis or a Trump crisis, you could see interest rates fall because of a stronger demand for that safe haven of Treasuries. Yeah, and, and despite all the extra borrowing, despite the Fed balance sheet, yeah. um, all these pressures that should be suggesting that you know rising deficits, Fed selling, or, or sort of rolling off their balance sheet, you should be seeing rates pressuring higher. You know, the Fed did a survey, oh maybe a decade ago, and they concluded that there's not a strong correlation between deficits and higher rates, maybe a little higher. But I think the thing that would affect rates is inflation. Uh, an overheating economy, something like that. So I, I think that we still have some time to get by without the deficit dramatically hurting the economy. But I got to tell you, there's vir- virtually no one in this city, in Washington, who seems to all that concerned about the deficit. I think people are oblivious. They're willing to spend more. And at some point, these chickens are going to come home to roost. The Republicans care about the deficits when the Democrats are in. Yep. And then you got Trump in. They don't. They don't really care. Yep, absolutely. So you, 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 you're going to see that continue uh, until we get a catalyst. That catalyst would be an angry market saying, do something, but it, it hasn't come yet. I mean, it's an interesting theory that you should just keep the deficit spending until the market's care and start pressuring rates higher. Yeah, and, you know, that'll come. You know, maybe it's in 2021. I've, I'm not smart enough to tell you what year you know, the deficit will start yeah. to really unnerve uh, the markets. But when it comes, everyone will have to face up to the dirty little secret, and that is the prescriptions required 
to deal with the deficit are politically unpalatable. And no one wants to lose their next election. And when you look at what you've got to do to reduce the deficit, there's no easy choices. Yeah. When, when you think about the really looking forward beyond the midterms, and you think what are the big, you know, sort of the next uh, sort of looking forward, who do you think rivals, uh, rivals Trump in the, next, in the next set of elections? Do you think on the Republican side and then also yeah. on the Democrat side, assuming that he, he doesn't get impeached like you're suggesting, mm-hmm. um, who, who, who's going to be the contenders? Well, first of all, if Trump really wants a second term, he, he's got the nomination. I can't see any Republican taking him out, not John Kasich, Mitt Romney, you know, Nikki Haley. If he really wants a second term, the party, which is like 90% behind him, will renominate him. So then you look at the Democrats, and right now the big story for them, of course, is where are they headed? Are they headed off to a more socialist agenda, which I think could scare middle America? Uh, or are the Democrats going to go with some very elderly uh, dinosaurs, you know, Biden, Bernie, people like that? So when you look at who the Democrats have, you would conclude, I think, the Democrats need some fresh blood, whether it's Kamala Harris, whether it's uh, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker. Uh, but most of these people aren't well known. So I would say right now, you mentioned earlier the betting odds in Vegas. The betting odds in Vegas right now is that Trump could win a second term. Hmm. And uh, is there any sort of tail candidate like a, uh, a Howard Schultz coming in from from Starbucks? I don't see it. I get the question all the time because uh, they're different. Uh, but we just elected somebody who was an outsider who wasn't super knowledgeable on policies. We're going to do that again? You know, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think, you know, what I always sort of say half-jokingly, if I tripped down a flight of stairs today and tore up my knee, I would want to go to the best orthopedic surgeon in Washington, not somebody who's never done an operation. And I think the idea of an amateur uh, has real limitations in every field, including the presidency. People just might think he just wasn't our guy and that, you know, on the other side of it, that once they get their guy in, you know, that... that, uh... Yeah, these issues are so complex, and you need the institutional knowledge, uh, and I, I think... You need somebody who uh, is perhaps a bit more into the policy nuances. Uh, But again, I would say that uh, there's a very plausible case to be made that Trump could win re-election. Now, he does have, you know, when you think about the the scoreboard for him, he's got jobs. He's got the unemployment rate basically heading to 50-year lows. He's got job growth doing well. He's got the GDP numbers printing high, 4%. He's got a lot of things he can take some some credit for. What in terms of other policies? Is there any policies he's going to be able to, or are the Republicans able to push through? They always talked about infrastructure. We yeah. have, that sort of fell off the cliff. No real discussions there. But any other things that you know, tangible policies that you think we might see? Or is it all just wait till the mid midterms and after that we're gonna we we'll see well, what happens. I tell you, Jeremy, it's going to be an interesting fall. First of all, I think the votes are there to confirm uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Uh, Maybe one or two Republicans, like Susan Collins of Maine, would vote against him. Uh, But I think there are three, four, five Democrats who would vote for him, Democrats like Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, who are really in trouble in this November's election. So I, I think he'll win on the Supreme Court nominee. And Trump has gotten a lot of conservative judges confirmed for circuit court seats in the last year. Uh, otherwise, you know, I don't see tax cut two. The votes aren't there for that. I, you're right. I don't see infrastructure anytime soon. I don't see immigration. I think both parties cynically use the issue of immigration to uh, fire up their base. Uh, the only other wild card would be a government shutdown on October 1, when the new fiscal year starts. If Trump doesn't get a chunk of money for a wall, He's threatened to shut down, but my hunch is most Republicans will go to him and dissuade him from doing this. I think they worry that a government shutdown a month before the election is a really dumb idea. Especially when you, you it's hard to blame the other side. It's like, yep. uh, it, you know, who's responsible? This is uh, all on you. Yep, exactly. Um, any other, as you think, as you forward, looked, looked from the, the, the other big issues that, that we're going to be confronting, any other issues that people should be focused on as we get to the midterms? Well, let me just, if if we've got another minute or so, let me just throw this at you. Uh, By raising the issue of Fed rate hikes, 
Trump has now put Powell in a very awkward position. If Powell maybe starts to slow down next year, maybe because of tariffs, maybe he doesn't raise rates as much as we thought, people would say, aha, Trump is, being, uh, is influencing the Fed. And they would, people would think about the old days with Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon, when Nixon uh, intimidated Burns and we got inflation. Or on the other hand, if uh, Powell keeps raising rates, he'll have a target on his back. He'll be uh, criticized by not just Republicans like Trump, but by the left, by Paul Krugman, by Bernie Sanders, by Elizabeth Warren. So Powell is now in a really awkward spot. And the greatest irony of all is that Trump had the most dovish Fed chairman ever in our lifetime, and he fired her. And, you know, maybe because she was an Obama appointee, and Trump is famous for wanting to purge any sign of Obama. But he had the perfect Fed governor, and he fired her. Always careful what you wish for. Now, yep. he has a lot of open seats on on other, you know, there's a number of Fed governor slots. Um, I mean, it's a very slim board. Doesn't he have another three or four positions? I, I think he's got three more. And, you know, he'll listen to Larry Kudlow and he'll listen to others. Uh, I don't see a, a radical Fed. I, I think that uh, my concern would be uh, him saying to potential appointees, you know, go easy on the interest rates. And I think that is something that no Fed appointee can assure the president. The, the, the Fed is uh, very, very jealously guarding its independence. Have you even heard names banted around? For- I, ha- I haven't. Been, I, frankly, I haven't been looking at it. I've been spending more time on trade, it seems, than than and the fall election than any other issues. Yeah, I haven't heard any names um, floated by, and I, that is certainly one of the, the open spots, so it's, it's going to be interesting to watch. Yep. So we, ha- we ha- we're in our final two-minute countdown. Um, any other issues that you think we should uh, just finally focus on? Well, I do think after the election, Jeremy, there's going to be a mass exodus. I think you're going to see a lot of people leave the White House. Uh, maybe some good ones, like uh, Mattis, the uh, Secretary of Defense. I, I think the press secretary, Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders, probably will leave. I think Kelly will stay, but I think an awful lot of people are, are burned out. It's a very stressful job. It's not the easiest place to work. So you'll see a new group uh, come in. But it's still, at the end of the day, it's Trump's show. It's Trump's tweets. But as I say to all of my clients, all of the investors I see, try not to spend much time focusing on the tweets, focus instead on the fundamentals, and they still look great. They still look great, but then if we get, uh, if we get this anxiety, it's going uh, to be an interesting. How can people stay in touch with all your capital notes and all, and all your research? Well, I work for a great firm called Horizon Investments. They're in Charlotte, and just, I, I, just shoot me an email, gvalier at horizoninvestments.com, and we'll put you, I do a daily piece. Uh, it can be read in one minute. Uh, try to stay uh, on the 50-yard line, and uh, just throw me an email, and we'll put you on the list. Greg, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming back. All right. Great to talk to you, Jeremy. Um, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 132. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.